Yeah, I don't know, man. You ever just feel like life is just catapulting towards like, some greater purpose? We are the only DJ crazy enough to tattoo Jackie Brown on his ass. This is Michael Mann, and I ride with Extended Clip. Welcome to Extended Clip. It's episode 123, and I am your one and only host for the day, Eddie Averill. Yes, you heard me right. Malcolm and JT sadly could not make it today because they just couldn't take the heat. You know, when you got a big guest like this, sometimes your co-hosts say, oh, I got to work. Oh, I have a job. Oh, I have to go to work. Oh, Eddie, why don't you get a job? You just had a job. What, what, ha- what happened? But, you know. Uh, say la vie. I took the extra time out of it. I've been looking forward to this talk for a very long time. Um, I am an empty man head, just like a lot of you are. So, that's right. We have the director of The Empty Man, David Pryor, on the podcast today. Uh, we started off talking about a short film, and uh, that one's called AM1200. We talked about the behind-the-scenes documentaries he's made, and of course, the meat of the discussion is on The Empty Man. So listen up. Did, did you also edit the uh, the AM-1200? Oh, yeah, I did. I, that was like, you know, no, it wasn't a one-man band, but oh. it was a, a very few men band, and I was most of the players. Yeah, I did the sound design and the editing and the, <laughs> pretty much everything. Yeah, I wanted to I wanted to ask you about that one because uh, the I guess the pull quote on it from uh, David Fincher, I guess a past colleague, is that it's like, uh, you know, <laughs> as good of a calling card film as you can get. And I wanted to talk yeah. about that, so... Was that made like with the intent of really just like getting your name and style out there for people to say like, you know, look, I can make really good horror movies. You should let me do it. Yeah. I mean, it was a combination of a few things. If I if I thought I could have afforded to make a independently financed feature, I, I might have done that. Um the genesis of that thing, I don't, I mean, I've told this story before. I'll try to give you the short version, but the, it was essentially inspired by a, an incident that happened to me when I was on the road on working on a PBS television show mm-hmm. called Great Drives. And a lot of that whole incident of, you know, trying to stay awake in the middle of nowhere out in the woods in the Pacific Northwest, driving at, you know, three o'clock in the morning, trying to make time and falling asleep at the wheel and not, not able to find anything on the radio until I heard something that sounded weird like poking through the static just this distressed sounding voice and mm-hmm. i thought it you know at first was maybe it's a, a um you know radio drama or something like that but it's something sounded authentic and i heard the call letters of a radio station and then the whole thing disappeared into static and about an hour later i drove past a sign that had the call letters of that radio station and i could see the tower beaming up on the mountainside and i just got this kind of shiver and thought that's something i could use that for something and it sat there in my head for a long time and then eventually came together as a short. I mean, I, I, when I wrote it, it was 17 pages long and that just felt like the length that that story wanted to be. So a lot of it was I wanted to tell that story. Another was I wanted to do something of my own. I was really at, you know, champing at the bit, working on other people's movies and really wanting to do something of my own. Mm-hmm. And then, um, and deciding to hell with it. If it's only a short, then at least I can use it as a, you know, a calling card or, or whatever they call it these days, you know, yeah. sample reel or something like that. And, um, so I figured I can, if I, I can spend as much as I need to spend to make as polished looking as short as I can. If I try to do a feature for the same amount of money, it's going to be really scrappy and 
probably not produced as well as I would like it to be. I was trying to announce that I want to work at a certain level. I don't want to be doing, you know, micro budget indie features. That's just not where I want, where my ambitions were. You uh-huh. know? Yeah, no, that totally makes sense. And, uh, you know, the, the production of it is like, I, I, I was really impressed with how you could pull that off on such a small scale. You know, you have images that or even like uh, sequences that you then somewhat repurposed for the empty man like that. Yeah. That shot really blew me away where it pans to the map and keeps zooming in and then, you know, pans to the side. And then the I guess it's a drone shot that goes right through into the uh, the sunroof of the car. And yeah, uh, <laughs> in the well, that was actually the one in AM1200 was was version two. The first version was was appalling um <laughs> the uh drone technology at the time was still it was still military there, it hadn't made its way out into the public yet so we had one of those small helicopters that they use on film production sometimes you know it was a probably six foot long helicopter yeah. and the company that did it i mean it was a nightmare they they didn't account for the extra weight of an anamorphic lens so when we got out there, the wind was buffeting it, and it just the footage was unusable except for reference. So mm-hmm. that shot's entirely CG, and uh, so so I t- had to do two versions. The first version was truly terrible. The second version was was much much better, although still had some artificiality about it that I was hoping to improve upon. So the empty man was like my final statement on that shot. I don't ever have to do that shot again. <laughs> <laughs> um, I, I also liked, uh, maybe this is just for people who had seen AM 1200 before, but the fact that the camera doesn't go right into the car when you do it in the empty man, but kind of bounces off into the road and seeming and then yeah. cuts to inside the car is very disorientating, especially for like that point in the movie where everything is kind of coming apart and, you're maybe what 15 minutes out from realizing that this main guy is a tulpa and uh yeah i I found that to be really effective oh thanks yeah i mean it felt like you know an announcement that okay the movie's taking a turn again it's going into some kind of weirder deeper zone it it felt like the right place to do it in the movie and then yeah i wanted to try to do a a slightly different more elaborate version of the am1200 shot if i could have afforded it i would have kept it going even longer you know (laughs) kept chasing behind the car maybe push up to the windshield or around the side to see him driving but i was i didn't want to be too greedy with the (laughs) with the effects budget uh i also speaking of the effects budget i guess was most of that for i mean for am1200 that is was most of that uh for the the monster that's revealed in the third act and how, how did you kind of come about that design well, most of the there was there's deceptively a large number of effect shots in the movie, and same in 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 the Empty Man. There's there's probably just there's I think just under a thousand effect shots in the Empty Holy Man, shit. but most of them are un, are not the kinds of things anybody knows that you, you you they go right past you, and you know there's smaller simple things, but um, the uh, AM twelve hundred had a couple of things. There was a matte painting. Um, that I did where the transition to night, you know, where the, the mountain, the kind of the landscape, uh, as the night falls, it turns into the silhouette of the main character, mm-hmm. little things like that. The, the map shot was a big one. Uh, the creature shot of course was the, the bigger ones too. And that was a, another thing where, you know, I was cobbling it together myself out of whatever resources I could put to hand and finding people that were, um, you know, I was talking to several effects houses, people, people that were, you know, that did this, did that kind of work for a living. And those people have overhead and they have to charge whatever they have to charge. And it's, it's not on them, but I just couldn't afford a lot of them. Yeah. And so the creature ended up going through three different iterations. I, I kind of put together some reference of what 
the thing might look like and did a couple of drawings and things and then found lucked out with this little company that was just starting out some some former ilm guys that got together and they had a couple of you know workstations in their garage or in a condo in the valley or something and they were able to do some pretty high quality work for a lot less than they might otherwise because they were just brand new you know nice and i'll i'll move on from am 1200 after this but uh how, how, no, how did you get a uh, ray wise involved in it uh ray um was my actually my first choice um i can't remember how i got it to his agent but i sent the script and the previs i had previs the entire movie mm-hmm. um so one of the ways that i was trying to to you know scratch the itch of not being working on my own stuff while i was too busy working on i think at the time i was doing blade 2 and panic room at the same time and and a couple of other things and it was all you know it's just enormously demanding um on my time but i was able to sit at the computer in every free minute and teach myself 3d studio max and do do some sound design and and put it all together in after effects and premiere and cut this previs of the whole movie you, you oh, could watch wow. the entire thing and so I sent that along and I guess that impressed him as well. And I know that, you know, we told him where we'd be shooting. He still hadn't committed to doing it. And um, he just popped up on the soundstage one day. He'd apparently crept, he'd sneaked in and was was kind of vetting us. I think he was, <laughs> he just wanted to make sure what, you know, that he wasn't walking into a buzzsaw or something. And so he'd sat at this, on the stage and listened and watched us shoot for about an hour, I think, before he announced his presence and said that he would, he would be in the movie. And um, yeah, we were all thrilled and what a presence that is <laughs> yeah for sure uh to go to go back to cg and i guess moving forward to the empty man uh and effects shots yeah i, I read in the interview you did with adam Naiman that even like that that flock of birds that like briefly yeah. forms the pontifex logo in the sky was you know an effects shot and i wanted to know like i don't know in terms of uh planning how how much you take into effect like what will be done uh through effects in post versus what you're gonna at least attempt to capture on the day of the shoot yeah that's always a it's a we've had a little of that issue on this this thing i'm doing now as well but the the hope is anything that can be done in camera it you know it's it's like a it's like a a kind of it's almost by attrition. It's like you, if it's possible to do it in front of the camera, I will prefer to try to do it in front of the camera. Mm-hmm. Um, unless I just know what the, that we're never going to get the result um, that we could get if we do it in CG. But I, I just think ideally I don't want to have anything, um, any, any kind of barrier between the audience and the atmosphere of the mm-hmm. movie. And sometimes too much CG can kick you out of the atmosphere. Absolutely. so it's but it is uh, it we do live in a in a pretty amazing time for um that the fact that fix it in post is actually a real thing now you know when i was coming up that was just a lie people would tell themselves you know you you get through the day and go oh it's okay we'll fix it in post and there was no such thing really as fixing it in post but now there (laughs) is and so you can you like there were a couple of shots where we would chase something i go okay let's give this a crack we'll give it 12 takes and see how we do and if it doesn't look like we're getting anywhere near it we'll just pull the ripcord and do it and do it in cg oh, okay so it just becomes one of those you know you're familiar if you're familiar enough with the tools and with the possibilities then you can you can kind of do it that way or or you know for example that yes this is all going to be cg but it'll be much better and easier if we spend an hour shooting some reference material here so we have all the lighting and everything 
you know, it's it's just kind of a horses for courses. It's it's a shot to shot um, decision. Yeah. Um, I also wanted to kind of go back then because you you had mentioned when you were working on Blade Two and Panic Room, and I wanted to know how did you get into that whole like uh, behind the scenes uh, shooting featurettes and stuff like that. It was it was a you know purely happenstance kind of thing. Um, I mean the the road the road to this particular point is is needlessly detailed and complicated, but I, I found myself in contact with the. 20th century Fox home video people. I, I was, I was helping, um, to put together the first DVD release of alien. Um, cause some friends at the time were working with Ridley Scott and that was a project that they were asking for. And I have <laughs> a rather obsessive relationship with that movie and has since I was 10. So, I mean, the, the, the reason I was asked to come in is cause this, this friend knew that when I was a kid, I had chased down every last little stray music cue from the film that wasn't, composed for the film right there was some music that was made it from the temp into the final so so like some cues from jerry goldsmith's score for freud and there was some um uh some things from a howard hansen symphony number two romantic and i so i back when this was difficult i I went to record stores and everything and found out of print albums and and edited edited the cues together on tape and built my own cassette of the alien complete score and then handed that out to friends and so he asked me to reproduce that for the DVD, which I did. And so getting to know these, this Fox home video people, I, I was just friendly with them. And, and so it happened that when I saw this movie called ravenous, that really knocked my socks off, I went to them and said, it was very similar in, in, in a sadly, but interestingly prophetic way that movie suffered uh, a very similar fate under the 20th century Fox management uh, mm-hmm. that my film did, which was, they had bought this thing and didn't know, didn't, didn't care for the end result, didn't know what to do with it, just kind of abandoned it. And I said to the Fox Home Video people, you guys don't realize it, but this is a really good movie. And if there's a special edition, I think it'll do pretty well. And they said, why don't you do one? And I said, okay. And so, <laughs> so I did this, I did the best I could under very limited uh, resources and, um, and it worked. It sold triple what anybody had expected it to. It kind of, it caught a little bit of fire when the DVD came out. And so that led to the question of, do you want to do another one? And I looked at their upcoming release schedule and saw fight club. And I was like, I don't know what fight club is, but I really want to meet David Fincher. So I'll do that one. And, um, thankfully David let me, you know, I got on the phone with him and, and, uh, he said, go ahead. So fight club turned into a rather large, uh, cause celebrate on DVD when it came out and that kind of, set me in motion so suddenly i had you know i went from being poor as a church mouse with no work to having more work than i knew what to do with doing (laughs) dvd stuff wow that's that's awesome uh i i I wanted to mention since you talked about panic room i think that's the one where on the commentary fincher talks about his decision not to shoot like proper anamorphic i guess and like uh what is it that he does like trim the open mat down to 2.35 from like the well that's what generally I mean, two, 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 three, nine is what the anamorphic aspect ratio has been ever since the seventies. Uh-huh. Um, <laughs> so when, when you're looking at a movie that's, um, not shot scope, but has a two, three, nine aspect ratio, it's what's called super 35. So you're, you're shooting a, a larger square format in the, you know, on the set, but then you're, you're framing or composing for the crop. Yeah. It's just a, it's a crop. Oh, okay. Well, the, the difference on panic room was that he shot three perf. So 
the uh, normally, you know, 35 millimeter, you're shooting four perf. And when you're cropping that much of the image, you're throwing away an enormous amount of it on just what will eventually just be black bars, right? Mm -hmm. But by shooting three perf, you're shooting a narrower aspect ratio to begin with. So you're so you're not cropping as much of the image and you're not wasting as much film. So it was just kind of an, an efficiency thing. Okay. And yeah, I, I, I wanted to know because the, the anamorphic stuff in Empty Man in particular, like the an- anamorphic distortions, I remember in, yeah. in, in that prologue, I feel like they come through heavier than in the rest of the film. Uh, or maybe my eye was just more attuned to it at that point and more just terrified by the end of the film. Uh, but I wanted to know how you kind of take those distortions into account when you're uh, like doing pre-visualization and planning and storyboard and that kind of stuff because yeah. they can so greatly change the image it can yeah and you just you just it just takes familiarity with the format you just have to know what um i mean every and every anamorphic lens package has different characteristics but the things that they all share in common are apart from the obvious stuff like the you know the way that sources streak although you can get like the the airy master primes uh anamorphics don't really even flare that much Mm. but um so you can get special flare sets of anamorphic lenses where they remove the coating and they really get those kind of you know 70s style streaks. But the other thing is the thing they all have in common is that the the um, center of the image that's in sharpest focus is an oval, and it falls apart really fast on the sides the more wide open you are. So if you're shooting wide open you know, which we did a lot. I mean, it's normally a, a T5 is, t- or 4.6 to, to 5 is considered like a, a good anamorphic stop because there's enough, um, that means there's enough light in there for you to stop down and increase the depth of field and it reduces the amount of distortion that happens on the sides of the image. Mm. Um, but we were shooting wide open a lot. So we had, we shot with the G series lenses and we just liked those characteristics. And it just becomes a question of knowing um, if you want something sharp, don't let it be outside the center of the lens, you know, <laughs> essentially. That makes sense. Uh, to stay on this topic, kind of, um, so the film was released uh, and projected in the uh, Cinemascope format, but then the digital release was down to 1.85. And I kind of wanted to know what the discrepancy there was. Um, I never saw nor approved a 185 rule oh no i guess i guess i must have at some point approved a 185 because it's just part of the requirements for delivery Mm -hmm. i never wanted it to be 185 and i never i think what i was told was that it would be 185 on airlines um the the idea that there was any release at all in 185 really bothers me it's not what the it's not what the film should be and the version that i've seen on uh like hbo max and um itunes and stuff is is 239 oh okay because it was initially maybe i i think uh when, when the film initially hit vod i saw a lot of screenshots of it in the the 1.85 i i heard that some people were seeing it in 185 and that yeah it, it i don't know where they were seeing it that way it really bugs me but uh <laughs> hopefully that's not the common way people are seeing it yeah i mean just uh even though you're saying you know about keeping the things in focus on the center of the frame there is so much on the outskirts of the frame to catch the eye in this movie. oh yeah and i'm talking about very minor little things like um i mean if you're doing it like a if you're doing a say say you're doing a 50 50 where you've got two faces on either side of the frame you just have to know where the image is going to be a little bit softer on the sides and mm. if it, if if it's going to be too soft then you pump in some more light and you stop down and you make up for it it's not that it's 
the image falls apart outside the circle of confusion if you're really paying attention to it. But it's, I mean, it's not the kind of thing that most people really notice. And I think when what you lose is the value of an anamorphic lens to me. And, I, you know, Fincher hates anamorphic. A lot of people, Guillermo hates anamorphic. And people have their, their peccadillas. But what I love about anamorphic is the fact that you're getting, you're essentially getting two focal lengths at once. Mm-hmm. The, dif- the difference between anamorphic and just cropping the image, it's not just about the aspect ratio. It's because, like, if you're shooting in a, with an anamorphic 50 millimeter lens, the center portion of the lens is optically a 50 millimeter, but it has the same field of view as a 25. Mm-hmm. and all the way up the scale. So if you're shooting 100, you've got the properties of a 100 millimeter close-up lens, but you've also got the angle of view that's of, of a 50. So it gives you all this extra, it gives you width when you wouldn't have it otherwise in spherical. And it just has an optical quality that I find really interesting. And to me, I, you know, it's probably just nostalgia, but it's to me, that's what big movies look like. That's what all my favorite movies looked like when I was growing up. So I, I love anamorphic, but... Um, I'm not uh, in the majority. <laughs> well, no, I'm glad to hear you discuss it like that because myself, I'm like a total novice with lenses and whatnot. You know, I've shot some things on my own, but for the most part, I'm just uh, basing it off watching movies. And so you uh, putting the actual facts behind what I qualify as, oh, that looks really cool uh, is great Yeah, to I hear. think those those are the technical things that you, <laughs> once you once you get those things down, you go, this is why people, this is why I think it looks cool. I didn't, yeah. I couldn't have told you why before I dug in and figured it all out but yeah that's I, it, I agree i think it just it's it it's a john mctiernan called it the, the cheapest special effect you can have and I, <laughs> I kind of agree with him you know it's like it's just got a quality now there's something I, I shot spherical for the first time in my life on this netflix show and you know the 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 sharpness and purity of a well-made spherical glass it's not it's, it's not nothing it's nothing to sneeze at so mm-hmm. you know my preference is still anamorphic but um, but, uh, you know, good glass is good glass. Are you going to stick with digital for now or you have plans on shooting something on 35 like AM, uh, was shot on? Yeah, I, I miss 35. It's gotten harder and harder to, it's gotten hard to talk people into spending the money on it. Yeah. And, um, and it, you know, frankly, it's hard to talk myself into it too, because the advantages of shooting digital are really, um, hard to sneeze at you know the the idea that that you can sit on the set and really see what you're shooting and it's not you're not looking at at a kind of proxy video image that's being recorded through the camera and and um and you you know it's and it's it's essentially it's much cheaper to shoot you can shoot for longer you can you can shoot 15 minutes you can just not cut and keep shooting Mm -hmm. and the workflow is I, look, I, I love 35. I think a beautifully shot 35 image is um, still pretty hard to beat. And I would love to come back to it eventually. Uh, it's just, there's a lot of obstacles. <laughs> yeah, no, <laughs> that makes sense. Um, one thing that I see regarding The Empty Man, the more I read online and just like uh, what my friends say online about it and whatnot is a phrase, uh, a, a phrase keeps popping up. The phrase is creepy pasta. Uh, are you aware of this like online phenomenon? Have you read this about your film at all? I, I've seen the word attached. Yes, I, I know what it is. I've, I've read a bunch. Um, there's a another movie that... Um, a tragedy. One of my one of my deepest professional wounds was a movie that I uh, 
came very close to getting made and was was essentially taken away and stolen from me by an unscrupulous producer who I allowed to have too much um, power. Mm-hmm. I, I trusted the wrong person and I shouldn't have and I knew better, um, but I just allowed myself to be kind of wooed by a lot of um, by a lot of talk. And uh, it turned out to be a, a real harsh, painful learning experience. And that project a lot some of those ideas ended up in the empty man but really it was just a kind of learning experience about how how, who who and how and what not to trust and and how much control we have to retain over our own material and um that was to a large extent i wouldn't say inspired by creepypasta but it was more overtly a creepypasta like story in the sense that I was interested in the story regardless, but around the same time that I had found this story and was writing the adaptation, I um, I also chanced across some creepypasta stories, 90% of which are just worthless, but yeah. a, a small percentage of are pretty, you know, interesting in the format. The, the, this kind of this internet um, enabled idea of these little sort of micro, you know, I guess, I don't know, at some point in previous generations, they might've just been, you know, babysitter stories or, or campfire stories or something like that. But there is the good ones when they're good are really interesting because they can be very, very chilling and create a real first person kind of atmosphere. And they do it in a very, in a bite sized kind of way. Mm-hmm. Um, there was a, there's a really interesting book actually called pen pal that, I really liked, and I think, if I'm not mistaken, that started as a kind of creepypasta thing before the guy expanded it into a book. Oh, okay. So it has it has value. I, I think it's you know it's it, like anything, most of it's garbage, but not all of it is. <laughs> yeah, I was just interested because it is. I, I guess it is really a new form of, uh, or at least a new take on narrative in movies. You know, you you think of what we can add at this point, and a lot of it is going to be kind of like online based stuff, I guess, and uh, and even with like new images, uh, there there are. Uh, some online images in the film, like the the Wikipedia rabbit hole uh, that's yeah. gone down. And I think that is also really well done because it, it's more dynamic, but also like uh, like more dynamic than other uh, computer on screen images I've seen in films. Uh, but uh, so so did you kind of just screen record that or were you shooting that with a camera? Oh, the wiki stuff. Um, I uh, actually I built all of those pages myself in uh photoshop and then did all of those screenshots in after effects myself oh okay nice um you know it's i I guess that's probably not a very common thing for (laughs) directors to do but (laughs) but um yeah and that was also speaking of anamorphic distortions and things one of the things you find when you're doing fake screenshots like that is that you have to add texture to the image, even though if you if you put your eye up next to a decent laptop screen, you don't really see any textures. But if you don't put some kind of pixel texture in it, it just doesn't look right when you're um, when you're rendering them. Mm-hmm. So you have to do that. And then you have to add the kind of magnification distortions and the chromatic aberration around the sides of the image and stuff to make it look like it was photographed. Oh, OK. Uh, so there was a lot of that, but it was all digital. And did you also design the uh, the questionnaire that they fill out at Pontifex? Yeah, I wrote all of those. And in fact, the, most of those shots, um, 99% of them actually I, are also shots that I did myself in After Effects because the props had were full of typos on the day. It was so... <laughs> 
So, uh, yeah, we had to replace all of those. As someone who's worked as a props PA, uh, as like my only industry experience, that just gave me like, I'm already going to have nightmares about that now. <laughs> <laughs> yeah, it was like, it was horrible. We, we handed them to the actor and I'm looking at them going, oh, geez, we can't shoot this. So we shot them anyway, <laughs> but then I, I replaced them all. <laughs> That's great. Uh, <laughs> I wanted to talk about a couple of the actors in the film. So James Badge Dale, uh, I, I had never seen him in anything before. And then I look up his credits and it, made perfect sense to me that he's been in episodes of like three different CSI shows and a law and order because I feel like he really uh, at once you know is, is a great way for the audience to graft onto the horror of the movie but also the kind of a uh, not actual cop but police procedural style uh, way that the narrative is unfolded I feel like there, there's just a, a very steady uh, way that you know a, an actor like him can ground a procedural type narrative and uh, yeah how, how'd you come upon like him as an actor or select him for the role yeah I, well I, uh, I I can't sing Badge's Virtues enough he's uh, I've, I've again I've mentioned it before but the show that I saw that him in that first drew him to my attention was Rubicon mm which um, was one of those occur, you know, one of those shows that uh, you feel like somebody just made this show entirely for me. I can't imagine a lot of other people loving this, but I just adored it. And it died after one season. They never finished it. But he was such a revelation to me. Um, and I was kept trying to pinpoint what it was about him that I liked so much. And part of it's just his kind of, you know, his charismatic presence. But it was also the way that the show um, dramatically hinged upon his ability to sit sit quietly in a room by himself and think and still be interesting so he has internal processes that that i don't know it's not a lot of actors can can command a screen while they're not interacting or saying anything where they're just sitting there and being and contemplating Mm -hmm. and that's a rare thing and so that's that was the show that made me go someday i'm going to work with that guy and then um you know that was years ago and then um when we were looking around at casting, he was always at the top of my list and the studio wanted a big name at first. And so we went around, went down the list and I kept coming back to badge. And fortunately, Denise Shamey and my casting director was also a big fan of his. And so the two of us kind of ganged up on them after a while when we, when nothing else was coming through and we kept going badge badge. And finally they acquiesced and, um, we were lucky for it. He's, he's fabulous in the movie. And at this point, uh, the the executives at 20th, uh, this was just pure 20th century, not Disney yet? Yeah, no, it was, it was uh, well before the acquisition. It mm-hmm. was, um, this would be in like late 2016, I think. twenty or Yeah, late 2016 is and, when we cast it. And you shot 2017, but it didn't come out until late 2020. Is that correct? We started in late 2016, I believe. And then it was December that year that we got snowed out in Chicago and we didn't get to pick up and finish shooting until august of 2017 mm-hmm. and so august september i think was when we finally were able to wrap shooting and then and it was supposed to come out 2018 and then the disney acquisition and all of that nonsense was going on so yeah it didn't make it out till 2020 yeah and i mean beyond the obvious which is just pure frustration i'm sure uh what what was the feeling of seeing a film like take that long to come out like did you feel differently about the film when you locked picture versus when people were watching it because you know three years had passed or so and uh people change in times like that yeah well i mean it's it's inevitable that um i don't think you can ever do anything and not 
not look back at it sometime later and go, ah, wish we'd tried this or boy, now I see the solution to that problem that I just didn't think I had a solution for. Or, you know, there's a kind of simplification that I probably would have done in the writing stage. Um, but that said, you know, the, the whole, the whole finishing of the movie was so kind of fraught because, you know, we'd lost the confidence of the studio. Um, they didn't, they just, I mean, whatever confidence they may have had to begin with, I don't know, but at some point they just, they just lost interest in us. And I think some of it was the people that were largely responsible for pushing the thing through the system were gone. So there was a kind of, there's an innate lack of interest that comes when, when uh, a personnel change like that happens. And, and, you know, having, having low test screening scores never helps. It's the Mm -hmm. test screening process is a, is, should be should be burnt with fire it's it's just the worst and it it doesn't help anybody all it does is hurt yeah um because it either it lies to you in both in two different ways one it either lies to makes you think the movie is better is is unimpeachable which we've seen is not the case a lot of times you have movies that score 90s in the test screening and then they come out and bomb and the end history is fraught with uh movies that scored abysmally in the test screenings and come out and become either hugely successful or they eventually become the you know cult classics it's like the thing that a lot of times what it what it can't take into account is the things that a test audience don't like are sometimes not always but sometimes very often the things that a general audience or a later audience will like the most mm. and so the the screening it it's been said a thousand times, but it's absolutely true. Screening a movie for an un, uninterested or disinterested audience is very valuable. Sitting in the room with them and feeling their backs of their heads is very um, uh, um, illuminating. It can tell you a lot. Having having them fill out cards and answer questions from some MC is not useful and is yeah. <laughs> worse than not useful. It's really detrimental. So the focus group and the cards have to go. I, as a fan, I agree. I mean, I've seen, I've just read so much over the years about, you know, some of the great films, you know, like for me, I'm, I'm only 26 years old. So, so many films that I watch from the seventies or eighties, uh, I have no idea what the reception was. So to see something like Coppola's one from the heart recently, you know, and Mm -hmm. just be completely blown away by that film and watch the behind the scenes documentary on that, which is great and goes into how he innovates pre-visualization for that movie essentially. Uh, and then it's just, completely tragic once the tests come up yeah i actually and and he and he started that test process in a large i mean people (laughs) were testing it's not really true i mean he started nrg the the uh audio studios had always tested movies and stuff and i think they'd even done the questionnaire thing but he kind of is the the current instantiation of it and the kind of the the faux science of it um, was really implemented by Coppola to some extent. I, I got to walk around on the sets of one, one, one from the heart when I was really young. It was amazing. Wow. That Las Vegas strip set was incredible. I was auditioning for, um, as an actor for the outsiders and, and uh, took a long side trip down that, down that, uh, set. It was pretty incredible. So this but is, I, you, Oh, go ahead. No, no, go ahead. I was just going to say, so th- this is what you were in your maybe early twenties, a teenager at this point. Oh no, I was, I think I was 11. Oh, wow. 12, okay. <laughs> something like that. I was really young. I made maybe 13, whatever it was. I was in that. I was like in sixth grade, I think. So did you initially um, want to be an actor? No, but I had been. Um, when I was, 
very young, I almost was cast in The Champ, the remake of The Champ that um, John Boyd and Faye Dunaway were in with Ricky Schroeder. It, wow. I auditioned. I was in an audition process for like for two or three months on that movie, and I it got to the point where I'd been at it so long, and all the other kids that were part of it had been um, gradually, you know, just left out, and I was the last one standing. And it really looked like I had the part, and then out of the out of nowhere, they gave it to Ricky Schroeder. Well, not out of nowhere. It, it seemed to be out of nowhere to me. I'd never heard of Ricky Schroeder or met him or anything, so I had come close. I, I, even at that time, I was not acting wasn't really what I wanted to do. I, I was was from even younger than that. I knew I wanted to be behind the camera. But but it was it was interesting and it was fun. And, and I turned out I was not terrible at it. And so I did it for a little while. I did a little bit of theater and stuff. And I did some suit work, but it wasn't my heart was not really in it. So yeah. I didn't chase it. You ever going to put yourself in one of your movies? <laughs> probably not I, don't, I, I, I always I always cringe when I see like you know M. Night Shyamalan in his own movies so I, I, I don't want to be the source of anybody cringing oh god I mean hey you'd win me over we're big M. Night fans at this podcast but it's understandable <laughs> no I, 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 I some of his movies are fantastic but it, it a lot of times you just feel like you know you would have been better off casting a better actor in that part completely understandable <laughs> especially early on I feel like once he hits like Lady in the Water it becomes a very self-conscious thing to put himself in his movies yeah and before that it's like clearly he had the thought that so many people did that's well hitchcock had a cameo in all of his movies you know well yeah he he walked (laughs) through the frame carrying a carrying a a bass a a string bass but the the, he he, i thought he was his best cameo i think was probably in signs i thought he was pretty good in signs you know what that's a good one yeah i i want to talk about the notion of like the the cult movie because this is something that, yeah, as you said, like a lot of things that maybe didn't test well or maybe even didn't do well at the box office. Uh, and you, you even worked on the home video release of some of these movies where it's like, oh, something like Fight Club, once it hits DVD, everyone uh, understands what the movie was doing. For some reason, they didn't understand it in theaters, you know. And yeah. I, I want to know, like, well, first of all, how, how does it feel to have seen people uh, respond so positively after the fact about The Empty it's- Man? Well, it's, it's, it's amazing. I mean, it's, it's validating. It's, um, it's gratifying. It's, um, it's everything, you know, in, in the, in the fullness of time, uh, the, the possibility that the film would have been completely emaciated or, or emasculated and just kind of destroyed by this cheap 90 minute producer's cut was, was very real. Um, yeah, I cringed if, when I read that there was a 90 minute cut of the empty man. Oh, and it's not just a 90 minute cut, which means that it didn't have any of the textures or the, or any of that, but it, it was truly one of the worst films I'd ever seen. <laughs> and like, I, I, it was career killingly bad. And it's, I would have, I would have immediately Alan Smithied myself and, um, nobody would have ever, heard. it was, it was abominable. I, and it was so bad. And so um illustrative of the kinds of nonsense you have to go through with this process that that i was determined that for the blu-ray release that obviously never happened but i wanted i was going to demand that that cut be included (laughs) so that people could see uh you know so many of the movies i loved that that kept me inspired to to you know to stay in the business despite (laughs) despite the fact that it's not a business that's, that's oriented toward you know creative satisfaction um were were movies that weren't appreciated in their time and uh 
and were even hated um, by critics and audiences when they first came out. I, I remember seeing uh, Blade Runner twice in the same day when it first came out and just being bowled over by it and then not understanding what I was reading from the critics and, and other audiences. That movie was reviled when it first came out. And the same with, with um, oh God, so many, The Thing was a big one. Yeah. Um, um, there's tons of cases of this. Oh, Return to Oz. Like, it's a wonderful movie. I adored Return to Oz and people just hated it. And um, so it, 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 it gives you, it gave me a little bit of a, <clears throat> it made my feeling about going through all of this with the empty man. I, I, I was like a little sanguine about it because I've, I've seen this happen to so many other people's better movies, better directors, but with better films have suffered the same fate. So it, it made it, it made my it, it put a curb on my self-pity <laughs> but, yeah. but it is an interesting phenomenon and i don't know exactly the interesting question to me is something like blade runner was just so far ahead of its time that there was it's almost inevitable that that nobody would get it when it first came out and you have to let some time go by and let the rest of the culture sort of catch up to be, in order for it to be appreciated i i would never in a million years suggest that that was what was happening with the empty man. I, I think it was just a case of, of studio, not just disinterest, but borderline malfeasance yeah. that buried the thing. And sometimes people like picking something up out of the trash and going, Hey, this isn't as bad as I was told it was. And it creates a feeling of ownership. And, um, I, I assume that's part of it. Um, yeah. I, the, the extent to which it's that versus, I mean, if the movie had been, properly marketed, supported, and let out in the world and, and bombed, then, you know, that would be what it was. And, and that might very well have happened. I don't know. And, and whether the Renaissance would have followed after that or, or not, we'll never know. But I wonder the extent to which it's, it's being just scraped off the studio's shoe wasn't part of the reason that certain members of certain audiences have kind of picked it up and taken it on their shoulders. Mm-hmm. Um, I don't know. Um, either way, I'm thrilled. <laughs> I couldn't be, couldn't be happier that at least it's my version of the movie that was allowed to come out and live or die by its own standards rather than some bastardized thing that was, you know, would have, nobody would have been talking about, I guarantee, you know. Yeah, I mean, it also probably didn't help that it was released, like, theaters were back open, but I think a lot of people were still you know, nervous about yeah, going out in public and stuff. That's true. You know, and the thing was originally, you know, apart once the, once the Disney acquisition was complete, it went through several different release dates. The first date was December, 2019. And then it was, uh, April, 2020. And then it was one August, 2020 and finally October, 2020. So that chasing the pandemic and the release schedule thing was all part of it. It did, it did come out in over 2000 screens, but yeah, nobody was going to the theater at the time. So, Speaking of, have you uh, have you been back to the theater recently? Seen anything good? Um, I did take. Um, God, what did I see? I did see something. My kids wanted to see a movie. I honestly can't remember what it was. <laughs> it was it was probably a month ago, and I've totally spaced out. Yeah. Um, oh, it was right after I got back from uh, Toronto. I I took them to, you know, I keep a little running journal of all the movies that I see. Yeah. And so it, I'm, it might be here if I just... Uh, no, yeah, go ahead. I I'll love to hear the process. Um, I, I just use Letterboxd for a diary, but before that I just had like a little spiral notebook that I wrote everything I watched on. 
I've got tons of those old diaries and notebooks <laughs> and things with the, the movie I saw and the date and who I saw it with and what theater going all the way back to like 1986 or something. Wow. Well, you know, letterbox might not last forever. I should go back to hard copies. <laughs> yeah, you probably should. Um, I don't, let's see. Okay. First day scouting. So that's back in July. Um, um, anyway, I'll keep, I'll keep going through and see if I can figure out what it was, but, uh, no, it's okay. In the meantime. <laughs> uh, I, I just wanted to kind of end on seeing if there was anything you were kind of, you know, wa- watching and thing- things in the contemporary cinema that you were excited about, you know, like I recently, I saw, let's see, last night I saw the new Paul Schrader movie card counter. I thought that was, oh, how was that? that? That was fantastic. Honestly, like if, if you liked first reformed, I think, uh, I, I think you know, a lot of people who liked First Reformed, maybe uh, who hadn't seen any other Schrader, might be a little surprised by this one. I, I need. I haven't seen First Reformed. I'm, I've been meaning to, but I, ha- I just it slipped by me. Oh well, you got is a it, great double it, feature in store then. Okay, great. <laughs> and Excellent. then the new Shyamalan's the other one from this year that I really loved. Oh, that was the movie we saw. Old. Oh, nice. That's a good one to see with the kids. <laughs> yeah, uh, my son wanted to see it, so we took him. Uh, I don't. I, it's funny. I may not have written it down. Wow. Because. Uh, I don't see it on my list. What what date? Do you remember when that came out? Oh, that came out. You know what? I also will look at my list because you know I was there opening night. Um. <laughs> I do not have. I forgot to write it down. I'm glad. I, I'm glad you brought it up. So now I can go back and write it down. Um, yeah. So that was. That, and and the theater was was not empty. Yeah. It was. Uh, it was in Glendale, and there was uh, a good probably. A, I don't know, 7,500 people in the theater. And I think I, by the time I saw it, it had been out for two weeks or something. So July 23rd is uh, opening day when Mm -hmm. I saw it at least. Yeah. Okay. So that was encouraging that, uh, that people were showing up for it. Yeah, no, I definitely had a fun, like that, that was the first time I had been back to the theater since the pandemic where I felt like it was a very involved audience, you know, and uh, I guess seeing a horror movie opening day is how you kind of guarantee yourself one of those. Yeah, exactly. Um, The, I've been I've missed so much like because um, I was shooting and, and and now I'm editing so I just have not been able to catch up but I, like I haven't seen the Green Knight yet I haven't seen uh, let's see I was about to start Malignant the other night I, I kind of decided to hell with it I'll just watch it on HBO but um, I have not been able to start it yet so I don't know. Um, yeah, I've got some catching up to do. <laughs> well, I mean, honestly, that's not a bad problem to have. Like, I, I'd much rather be making movies than fucking watching them. So, <laughs> yeah, I mean, I, I, I got some I, friends give me shit about it because they like to talk. We usually are able to keep up. And I, I mean, back in, I remember going to see three movies a day in a theater. Yeah. Um, back when, before I had kids and the whole thing. But, um, yeah, you're, you're, it, it takes more and more effort to kind of try to keep up when, uh, when you have this much, you know, this many demands on your time. I remember the the one thing that I really wish I'd seen in a theater last, I think it was last year, maybe the year before, was Phantom Thread. Oh, yeah. And I had to see that on a screener. Um, Rough. And, God, it was good. I, I mean, I remember being totally blown away by how funny it was. I didn't realize it was going to be a comedy. It's like, it's it's one of the quiet, I mean, it's not overtly, it doesn't present itself as a comedy, but by the end of it, I was just in stitches. It's so so dry and and really has this witty droll undertone to it and felt so much like the kind of movie i wish i could have seen in a theater so i gotta try to make keep up with that yeah those pt anderson movies it's like they can't help but be funny like even the the darkest most serious ones are still really funny (laughs) i love that about him and i mean it's it's a thing where it's a sensibility that i also um chase myself a little bit
bit. It's like, I just don't, I always like, the more dour and serious and dramatic something is, I, I'm always trying to find something that's funny about it, at least in an offhanded undercurrent sort of way. Um, and I love that about his stuff for sure. Yeah. Well, David, thank you so much for giving me some of your time. This was awesome to talk to you. Uh, once again, I mean, like if for anyone listening to this that hasn't seen it, uh, go watch The Empty Man. Rent it on VOD. Hopefully someday there will be a Blu-ray. That would be fucking awesome. I would love to have it on my shelf. I, I would really, really love for someday there to be a Blu-ray. I always imagined there would be. And the fact that there isn't and that I spent so much of my life making Blu-rays is sort of uh, <laughs> ironic in a yeah. disappointing way. But yeah, maybe. <laughs> but yeah, thanks very much. It was a pleasure talking to you. And if you know anything else you want to follow up with or whatever, I'm, I'm here. No, no problem. Awesome. Well, that, that was awesome. Thank you so much. All right. Thanks, Eddie. Take care. And there you have it, folks. Yeah, the, the, this is a little weird one because it's just me here. Uh, but you know what? I think we had a good time. We talked about everything. Not really. Uh, we talked about the empty man enough for you empty heads out there. Uh, if your brain still itches, just rewatch the empty man. If your brain still itches after that, go read the interview he did with Adam Naiman at Movie Notebook. And also, thank you to Adam Naiman for putting me into contact. I mean, come on, man. You gotta gotta give the guy props. Um, all right. See you next week for the, or actually, no, we'll see you later this week for the regular episode. Goodbye.